Two and a Half Admins, episode 23. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And this time we're going to do quite a lot of your emails and questions. But before that, I wanted to talk to you two about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I saw an article a few weeks ago when Bitcoin was really booming up to about 40,000 that said the world's cryptocurrency is now worth more than $1 trillion. It's probably not true anymore, but it's got to be close to that. What do you two think about this? Uh, to be honest, this was an excuse to laugh at you, Alan, for selling all yours at like five bucks or whatever you did. <laughs> yeah. You know, honestly, I, I think the uh, I think the more interesting comparison here for once is not necessarily the hard number because, you know, on a global scale, I don't really know what one trillion means that well. But um, one of the article pitches that I got in my Ars Technica email was about the, you know, the same topic, but the way that the pitch phrased it was the Bitcoin market cap is almost 50% of the silver market at this point, which I thought was uh, pretty evocative. Bitcoin now is worth half as much as <laughs> a literal metal on the planet. <laughs> kind of harks back to that uh, a couple of months ago, they were looking at the, that asteroid and how much the metals on it must be worth. Mm. And they made up this big number. And it's like, yeah, but if we actually started mining it, the value of those minerals, of those metals would go down if we suddenly had so much of it that you, you couldn't sell it fast enough, then the price would crater. And, you know, the same thing could happen with these Bitcoins. They're worth a, a trillion dollars now. But if everybody tried to sell theirs for cash, they wouldn't be worth that much for, for very long. Yeah, and the people who've got 200,000 of them or whatever, like Satoshi, like if he actually sold them, if he's still around, then yeah, the second he started selling them, the price would plummet, right? Yeah. Or at least anybody selling a large amount of it at once would imply that, you know, they've lost confidence in the value of Bitcoin. They don't think it's going to be worth more tomorrow. So if they don't think it's going to be worth more tomorrow, then maybe I don't either. And then I start selling and then it just goes out of control. Because you got in on the ground floor with Bitcoin, didn't you? You were mining and buying them pretty early. I never bought any. I only mined. But yeah, I mined back when doing it on a CPU wasn't ridiculous. Huh. And the GPU stuff was just starting to take off. Like we used uh, Radeon 5890s or something like that, which I guess is they're, they're back up to that number now. So that's how long ago that was, <laughs> like an entire set of generations ago. Yeah, not, not Radeon RX, just Radeon. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like when you talk about Red Hat, not Red Hat Enterprise Linux, Red Hat 5. <laughs> yeah, like when, when I went to college, we learned Red Hat 9. <laughs> you know, I mostly got away with my Bitcoins because we had a rack at a data center and it had some space in it and we paid for the whole 20 amps of 240 volt power and we were not using all of it. And so <laughs> it was, I was able to, you know, my friend and I cobbled together our old video cards and we put three video cards and like the cheapest AMD processor we could get through Ubuntu on it. Uh, and it was the first time there had ever been Linux in one of my racks. It was a tower case just stood there. I remember it was funny because all the crash cards were VGA still then. And all the high-end video cards only had DVI. And we needed an adapter and, and like... I remember trying to explain Bitcoin to the guy at the data center. <laughs> uh, but he went out to his car and he happened to have the right DVI adapter for me. Man, I got to say, that is some classic libertarian capitalist screw the planet ethos right there. <laughs> yeah, we're not seeing any increase in our power bill. So <laughs> yes, it made sense to mine the Bitcoin with power we were paying for and not using. Yeah. And what did you actually sell them at then? I sold them at $5 a piece. Uh, so at that, that, that point, the record high for Bitcoin had been $20. 
and it had been falling. And so we sold it $5 and watched it go down to a dollar and stay there for like a year or something. And so we were very happy that we managed to pay off all the hardware we had bought for it and so on and come out without having lost any money on this Bitcoin craziness. Which just to clarify, for those of you who don't follow cryptocurrency, the current US dollar market value <laughs> of one Bitcoin is $35,356.70 as we record this. Yeah, we had over 100 split three ways. So I would have had 35-ish of those coins were mine. But you wouldn't have hung on to them till it was $35,000, is the Exactly. Like, I definitely would have sold them when it hit $1,000. That still would have been a lot better than five. Yeah. But <laughs> I didn't lose any money, which is better than some people. So is it a pyramid scheme then? A Ponzi scheme? Or what? Not the classic definition of a Ponzi scheme, but it is more of just kind of like the, the great Dutch tulip yeah. thing and things like that. It's, it's, you know, the value Bitcoin has is the value people believe in it having and it's a bit of a bubble now because i don't know what people think is so great about them it's trading baseball cards with extra steps yeah the value of these collectible baseball cards has never been anything real it's you know purely in the idea that somebody wants you know a mint mickey mantle or you know whatever i don't care about these things enough to pay you thousands of dollars for it and, you know, the, the actual fact might be that, you know, a whole bunch of experts say that your mint, you know, Joe DiMaggio is worth $583. But when you actually go looking for a buyer, you can't find anybody who will take it from you. You know, like some guy at the pawn shop is like, I'll give you five bucks. Somebody else is like, oh, no, it's totally worth 500 bucks. But I don't want to spend $500 and get that. In which case, was it worth that? Now, to be fair, you know, when I say that one Bitcoin is currently worth $35,356.70, that means that you actually can sell one right now for, you know, that amount, you know, less a very small amount of fees. But, you know, that value can fluctuate enormously overnight. Yeah, it's, it's gone crazy in every direction. So I don't know that it's actually as useful an asset as, as silver or whatever. Um, the big difference with things like silver and gold is that in the end, they won't go all the way to zero because they still have practical uses like gold is used in conductors and computers and so on. So its value will never go to less than its utility. Whereas Bitcoin technically doesn't have any utility. Man, are we really going to get into a discussion of the nerdy aspects of fiat versus specie backed currency now? Because <laughs> it, it sounds like we're about to. <laughs> the real value of traditional currency is not that it's backed by hard specie because almost no real currency anymore is. Right. Once you start talking about gold and silver coins, you're talking really about trading. You're not you're, you're talking about trading the metal. You're, you're talking about something that the value does fluctuate much like Bitcoin does. And the whole market can be influenced by market movements. When you talk about, you know, U.S. dollars or whatever weird Canadian version of a dollar you guys got up there, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What makes that currency uh, more stable, what makes you trust that it has value is because there is a concrete promise made by the government of that country that says we have assigned this value to this thing and it will be that value. And that's the thing that you don't have with Bitcoin. And also you, you don't have, you know, with fancy gold coins or silver coins or whatever. You're, you're basing it on what people will be willing to take it from you for. Right. Although it depends. For example, my silver coins actually have a face value from the Royal Canadian Mint that they will give you for the coin 
no matter how little silver is worth. Although a hundred dollar worth of silver coin has a face value of $20. So it'd have to drop awfully low for the face value to be of any value, but it does have that minimum. But you know, in the end, melted down silver is, is useful in industrial applications. Right. Was my point. And so it makes sense to think of Bitcoin more like a metal or a, like an asset or commodity, commodity rather than as a currency, because yes, currencies have this backing behind them that Bitcoin just doesn't. And, and Bitcoins are maybe actually more like a future than a commodity in that it's like, this is what we think this will be useful for. <laughs> well, yeah, that's my next question. How high is it going to go? Well, I think the biggest problem right now is just because of the way Bitcoin works, the actual cost of a transaction is still too high. Like not, not the cost in Bitcoin, but like the cost and the amount of electricity it takes in general to hash out what's going to be the next transaction group on the blockchain. That is going to need to not be so ridiculously expensive, I think, for it to be really sustainable. So I don't know how sustainable it is. It's definitely not an investment grade asset, but it is surely having lots of fun with speculation. Yeah, I always say don't invest what you can't afford to lose. Yes, don't borrow money to invest in Bitcoin. That's definitely the big thing. Yeah, don't mortgage your house or whatever. But if you're not going to miss a couple of hundred bucks, then why not speculate? It could go up to 100000 or more. It could go up to a million dollars, maybe, in 10 years. Who knows? Yeah, if I'd spend $100 back when Bitcoin was worth a dollar, then... Exactly. Then I would owe the government a lot of uh, capital gains tax. Yeah, that's the other thing as well, right? <laughs> if you cash out, then you've got to pay a bunch of tax on it. But then I'd rather have a lot of tax to pay and a lot of money left than no money. It's a little too Wild Westy for me. Yeah. Yeah, the Two and a Half Admins podcast does not constitute financial advice. <laughs> there you go. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and more easily. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Let us know about the projects you've been using Linode for, and we might mention them on the show. Our website is hosted with Linode, and we're really happy there. So go to linode.com slash two and a half and click on the create free account button to get started. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Let's do some feedback there, not necessarily questions. Morton wrote in and said, nice discussion on reproducible builds. Arch does have a rebuilder set up, and we have other people running rebuilders as well. The quorum idea is being actively explored by multiple distros. And then he links to reproducible.archlinux.org. So I didn't know that, but that's good to see. Yeah, I think uh, FreeBSD's original interest in reproducible builds came when we got invited to the Debian Reproducible Builds Conference or something. Yeah, Debian's been really pushing that forward. I, th I think it was like 60% of their repos reproducible or something I read. Maybe that was a while ago. It's probably more now. But yeah, they're really pushing it forward. Chris wrote in and said, regarding the Apple M1 and lack of alternatives, here is what I'd like. A high-end laptop with an x86 CPU and a medium to high-end ARM CPU. The x86 is primary, but for lower power workloads, leverage the ARM CPU. 
What say you? That's just not really how operating systems work, is is what say I. The problem is that the, there's a separate ISA between x86 CPUs and ARM CPUs. They have a completely different instruction set. So you can't really just swap tasks willy-nilly between one and the other. Um, if you were to build some kind of crazy machine that had both an x86 CPU and an ARM CPU in it, that is something that you you absolutely could technically do. People do something fairly similar like for uh, production runs, testing um, RISC-V CPUs, sometimes they'll be embedded in an, a, a full ARM single board computer. But uh, you're, you're basically just kind of shelling into the one from the other. Uh, you, you can't really just move tasks or data between the two of them, you know, like you would with a, a multi-socket CPU or like a, a big little ARM configuration, you know, where you've got high power ARM cores and low power ARM cores, which is what the Apple M1 you mentioned was. The thing there is that they all run the same instruction set. So you can just move code between those cores. And even though they're different construction, everything still works. You can't do that between x86 and ARM. Yeah, you'd need like two versions of each binary to be able to run. And I think the other big problem would be just the, the cache coherency and memory coherency. Like how do you... When you make a change to a block of memory from the x86, how do you make sure the ARM knows about it and doesn't use its out-of-date cache of what was in that chunk of RAM? Oh, well, nice idea in theory, but it doesn't work in practice, eh? Well, it's weird, because more than half the computers in my house are in x86 with an ARM which, uh, CPU also in it. It's for the baseband management controller, so every one of my servers has an IPMI thing that's ARM, but it's a separate computer that just happens to live inside my computer. And now you, you could, in theory, build an operating system for a machine that had, you know, both CPUs in it. And the operating system understood which CPU to send, you know, which instruction set to. But yeah, why? Yeah, because like FreeBSD has this thing called the image activator. And so when it sees a ARM binary on your x86 machine, it knows it can be configured to know, hey, I can use QMU to actually run that in user mode. And that's how we do cross-building where you can actually, you know, if you're building packages for an ARM machine on your x86, sometimes they need to run like a configure script or something that assumes it's going to be running on ARM. And so we can actually emulate it and, and pretend it's ARM. But that's, yeah, even if the OS understood it all, there's quite a few hardware problems with it. Like I said, the cache coherency and so on. And in the end, I don't think it's that useful. That's why Big.Little exists, and it might be possible to even do Big.Little with x86, but in the end, the big question is, is why? And, you know, wouldn't you get more value from just having more scalable CPUs that run at 500 megahertz uh, to save power when you don't need it, and then go up to 4 gigahertz when you need it? All right, Tofa writes in, I'm still trying to shake the impression I had from a decade ago that Ubuntu was just an easier-to-use Debian repackage with a consistent release cycle. I still find it strange to see it on servers, but I don't judge anyone else's choices. But now, after 10-plus years of administering CentOS and Railboxes, I'm finally maintaining some Ubuntu servers in production. And while it is nice to have some software features newer than the last eight years, I feel like an idiot. I'm trying to automate software installs, but packages run interactive scripts when they install using DebConf. I can configure them myself with scripts and config files, but I can't run any package manager commands until DebConf configures it. I've learned of some environment variables that can be set up so it doesn't stop to prompt the user for input, but then the install fails. I've started writing pre-seed files, but I'm having trouble reverse engineering what needs to be in this file. 
I'm also not sure what AppArmor does and how. So I have two questions. How do you manage Ubuntu in production? And how do I convince developers to target FreeBSD? Well, I guess I'll take the uh, the interactive package question, uh, being that that's on Ubuntu. Um, and first, I will say that you know your your initial impression that Ubuntu is basically you know Debian with a, a few you know little cleanups and rough edges sawn off in a predictable release cycle. That is exactly what Ubuntu is, um, and the predictable release cycle is why I personally am an Ubuntu user. I love Debian. Um, I used to love FreeBSD, but I got tired of both of their support cycle of it's supported until it isn't, which will be a relatively long time, but you need to keep on top of that crap. Um, when I discovered that Ubuntu was saying things like, oh, hey, here's our operating system version, which is named after the year it came out, and you know it will be supported for exactly five years from that year, and we will have X number of releases along the way, that made my life a whole lot easier, and I would not want to live without predictable release cycles now. But getting back to your question about uh, you know non-interactive installs, so basically, if you need to do a non-interactive install of a package that normally is interactive, you first set the environment variable Debian front end to non-interactive, and that stops it from asking you questions. But the other thing is, if it needs those questions answered in order to successfully install the package, uh, you need to use the um, debconf set selections tool to actually precede the answers to the questions that that package will ask you. And the easiest way to do that is just to install the package manually and figure out, you know, what answers you need to give it. And then it should be relatively trivial to set them using debconf set selections. Now, as to how you want to convince your developers to target FreeBSD, I'm going to pass the baton to Alan. <laughs> well, first of all, I'll go back to the thing. Does the debconf thing not have the concept of a default? Like when you're building packages on FreeBSD, you can just set batch equals yes or package building equals yes, and it will just use the default to answer every one of the questions and spit out something that works instead of saying, you didn't answer the question. In the vast majority of cases, yes. But um, our listener specifically said they had had trouble with, you know, a package failing right. when it was only run with, uh, you know, non-interactive on, which doesn't surprise me. I, I don't have any difficulty believing they encountered something that, you know, didn't fall through sanely when it was run non-interactively. And in that case, Debcomp set selections is the answer. I guess, yeah, the way Debian and a lot of other Linux distros do packages is a bit different than FreeBSD, where it's like there's one official set of packages that's built by a machine, and so the machine has to be able to do it for it to work. Right. How to get developers to target FreeBSD, it depends what you're trying to do and what's not working. Like, you know, FreeBSD's done a good job of, of making most of the Linuxisms work, but the main answer is complain. Because you've got most of the open source software, right? It's generally the proprietary commercial stuff that isn't available. Well, there are times when open source software will assume you have systemd or things like that, or just assume that things are always going to be in the path that Linux likes to put them and things like that. But most of those are relatively minor to work around, although the systemd ones can be a little more sticky. Or A lot of software now tends to assume everything is Linux. Luckily, BSD's familiar relation with OS 10 means that usually there's enough other users that are interested in having something that's not Linux that some type of support infrastructure get puts in place to to deal with not Linux. And then it's usually just a small tweak to that uh, to also support FreeBSD. But yes, it's, I think it's mostly complain and get all your friends to complain. And then eventually that means that there's enough people interested that it's worth the developer's time. It really depends on what the problem is as well. 
if it's something FreeBSD can fix, then we try to do that. There's been a lot of work done recently that's going to come out as part of FreeBSD 13 in March, because we now try to have fairly predictable releases. Major versions like 13 will last for five years, although we would like to get, uh, like Jim wants, to having a much tighter schedule. But, you know, we don't have Ubuntu money. You don't have Spiceman money. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the Linux emulation layer in FreeBSD has gotten a lot of work recently, and you can actually run a jail containing an install of Ubuntu and be able to use Ubuntu Firefox and watch Netflix. Well, that brings me to the point of, isn't Ubuntu a tide that you just have to give into? Uh, if you want to work in the industry, Ubuntu has grown to the point now in popularity where you're going to come across it in your day-to-day life as an admin. Like You just have to learn to use it. I've not had to so far, but I know what you mean. It depends what you mean by giving to the tide. You're like, I, I would like to see we keep on the plurality and not fall into this concept of having monocultures. Like... Remember when we had the monoculture, everything is open SSL, and it turned out that was really bad, and then we said we were going to fix it, and then we never did? <laughs> we don't want everything to run on one operating system or one distro. We want there to be a healthy ecosystem, right? Like, one of the reasons we're so interested in ARM and RISC CPUs is because having only two vendors of x86 CPUs has meant that nobody makes a CPU that does this slightly weird thing that I want to do, uh, or whatever. And that's why... Competition is good, and so I don't think we want everything to be Ubuntu or everything to be Red Hat. We want four or five choices, and I think it's important to maintain that kind of differentialism. Yeah, well, you can always run your server on Arch, then you've got support forever, right? You mean for never? (laughs) Well, the support level never changes. How about that? There you go. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Learned. Sign up at automation.link and use the code ADMINS to upgrade and get 50% off a year's subscription to a new DevOps training site called Learned. The site covers the entire DevOps stack, starting with the basics of infrastructure as code and includes almost eight hours of lessons on Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, and loads of industry tips along the way. If you're interested in learning DevOps, take advantage of this offer by visiting automation.link and upgrade with 50% off with the code ADMINS. That's automation.link and the code ADMINS. All right, let's do some free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, show at 2.5admins.com is the best way. If you want to support creation of these episodes, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support and you can either use PayPal or Patreon. And with Patreon for $5 a month or more, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And thank you, everyone, who is supporting us. It's really appreciated. Craig writes to us, I'm currently learning FreeBSD and OpenZFS in order to have my own home NAS in the near future. Should I care about multiple power supplies? Should I care to have a UPS if my power goes out? Yes, you should care about having a UPS. Um, Multiple power supplies is probably overkill. The major reason to have redundant power supplies is really so that uh, you can hot swap UPSs, in my opinion. I don't believe that you really get much direct additional reliability out of having redundant power supplies, because in my experience, the uh, the controller, you know, that's that's common to both of the power supply modules is more likely to fail than either of the actual modules. But having redundant power supply means that you plug one half of it into a different UPS than the other half. And then when it comes time to replace the battery, you know, in one UPS, you can literally just go ahead and yank it with the machine running, uh, replace it with another UPS or replace the battery in it, plug it back in and go on about your day. Whereas if you have a single power supply on a single UPS, 
you can't maintain the UPS without bringing the box down. Yeah, for sure. Especially with the UPS. The big thing about UPS is, is the battery's got to be replaced usually every two or three years. Uh, and so you want to plan for that. If the downtime's accessible, then that's fine. But even for a home NAS, I definitely recommend a UPS because I found it greatly reduces the chance of a power supply dying in the first place. Also greatly reduces the chance of hard drives dying in the first place because mm-hmm. they're not getting the nasty power that made it through the power supply that didn't have a UPS in front of it. Just in general, machines live a lot longer behind UPSs than they do plugged directly into the wall. I was going to ask if it's overkill because I thought the idea of a UPS was more about downtime than longevity. It's very much both. UPSs are great, you know, in terms of downtime, you know, meaning that when your power just like flickers all of a sudden, instead of your machine crashing or rebooting, it just keeps right on, you know, trucking. That's nice. Uh, They're also very nice in that, you know, if your power is down for five or 10 minutes, you can gracefully shut down and do whatever, you know, you needed to do. You might even rig up a demon to monitor the UPS and automatically shut down your machine cleanly before the battery runs out. On top of all of that, you know, yeah, your machine will live a lot longer behind a UPS than plugged directly into the wall. Yeah. Um, Either of those reasons is enough for me to spend the money on a UPS. It's just kind of a no-brainer. I personally don't want anything not plugged into a UPS. Well, that's my next question. How much should you be paying for a UPS for just home usage? We're not talking enterprise here. About 120 bucks or so, typically. Um, You might end up going a little bit north of there if... uh, if you're looking for the larger Voltamp rating, um, a lot of it just kind of boils down to how savvy a shopper you are. But uh, the the big breakdown, there's basically three different major classes of UPSs, in my opinion, from a home or small business perspective. Uh, the lowest tier is the, uh, you know, it just looks like a really bulky power strip and there's no readout, no display, no nothing. Those things are garbage. It's not good enough. Don't do that. You want a UPS with a proper display that will tell you how many minutes of runtime, how many events it's dealt with, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then the next grade above that are smart UPSs. And that is nothing that you want any part of in a home or honestly, even in most small business environments. When you go from just the regular, you know, UPS with a display to the smart UPS, you talk about going from, you know, like... Between $100 and $200 to between $350 and $600 for the same voltage rating. Yeah. Uh, now, the smart ones generally, there is a difference in how they do the UPS-iness or the power conditioning. You know, there's the online interactive, uh, which is the, the more home gamer type one, where it monitors the power coming in from the wall and passes it through. And if it's ever not good enough, switches to the battery. And then you have the more, I forget, do you remember what it's called? The the opposite of online interactive. It sounds like you're reaching for truly uninterruptible power supplies, which standard UPSs actually aren't. A standard UPS is a switching UPS versus the type that actually always has you on the battery and is charging the battery from the wall. But I haven't even, I've never even seen one of those. Right. That's not the thing I'm thinking of. I forget what it is, but there's a difference in how much power conditioning they do. But yeah, for home, it's definitely not worth it. Like I, I mostly just have my APC backups uh, that I bought at Costco. They were about 100 to $120 Canadian for 1300 or 1500 volt amp uh, versions. The batteries don't tend to last very long. Uh, I've started to buy Eaton instead of APC because of that. I found that they don't cook their batteries in the same level, but any of them is probably fine. Like Jim said, shop around. The biggest annoyance with UPSs is they're heavy, so they're expensive to ship. So you might be better off going to somewhere like Costco to buy it 
than or or you know your local computer store rather than ordering it online just because of how heavy they are. That has not been my experience. Uh, the cheapest way I can get a UPS is to buy cyber power off of Amazon, which I have been pleased with those, by the way. I would say, honestly, the biggest annoyance with UPSs is, is that uh, the, the damn things all are very, very determined to squeal like banshees when the power goes out. Yes. And when your power goes out at three o'clock in the morning and all of a sudden 10 different devices scattering around your house are going, you know, beep, beep, beep and beep, won't beep. shut up. It's very annoying. Yeah, that's not going to go down well with my wife. That happens to me, and then I, I go around and silence them all, and then the power comes back on, and I'm like, I might as well just stayed in bed. <laughs> yeah, and, and a lot of them, you can't disable that at all. What I have discovered is the cyber power ones are actually your best bet for, for you know, just telling them, like, no, please don't ever do that. I don't need you to squeal to let me know the power's out. I can see it's dark, okay? Um, you can do that with cyber power. Uh, but you need to use like their special app on a Windows machine. Last I checked, um, mm. they may have a Linux version of the app as well. Now I can't remember. I just I had a Windows laptop handy with my APCs. If you hold down the speaker button for three seconds, it'll put an X through it, and it won't beep until the battery's down to like three percent, and it makes one death squeal. <laughs> yeah, but then once the battery goes completely dead, it forgets that you did that, and you're back to your original setting. Whereas with the CyberPower, when you disable it with the app. It's it's actually persistent. Oh, okay. Even if you lose power completely, it remembers it's not supposed to squeal once it gets power back on again. All right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, you can send those questions in for Jim and Alan to show at 2.5admins.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll be back next week.